Hi, everyone. Almost three years ago, I recorded a conversation with my good friend and screenwriter and producer Craig Mazin, creator of HBO's incredible Chernobyl miniseries. The first line of that five-part series is, What is the cost of lies? Throughout the show, Craig endeavored to help us understand that we need to have a willingness to see things as they are, not as they should be. Even if the show itself took narrative liberties to present to people, to viewers, to you and me, a version that is, as Craig puts it, sort of right. Vladimir Putin has spent the second half of his life furious at how humiliated Russia and the old Soviet Union were after sacrificing so much in World War II to stop the Nazis, after the Cold War, after the breakup of the USSR, after being mocked mercilessly for their climate, their fashion, their politics, their economy, and more. So Putin has used Russia's vast fossil fuel resources to become the energy provider to almost all of Europe. And he's used the revenue from those energy sales to rebuild his military and cement his place at the top of Russia's political machine and party and armed services. And this week, after months of buildup and intelligence warnings, Putin directed almost 200,000 Russian fighters to take back a country he believes is a rightful part of Russia, a country stuck for two decades between a growing NATO on the West and a resurgent Russia in the East. And just today, as tens of thousands of Russian citizens risk their lives at home to protest this war and this man, and Ukrainian people fight for their cities and their homes, reputable reports on the ground indicated that Russian troops have taken Chernobyl. It's important that we all understand the implications of what that means, of what Chernobyl was and what happened there, and what it means for the entire zone to be back in Russian hands. It's important that we're all on the same page as much as possible every day, but especially throughout this tragedy, operating from as much of the truth as we can. Here's my conversation with Craig from 2019. I hope you get something from it. Our guest today is Craig Mazin, and together we're going to ask Chernobyl, a preventable and rare accident from the past, or our hellish nuclear future? Uh, Craig, welcome. Thank you, sir. That was, that was the best possible intro I could have ever hoped for. You're welcome. Uh, Craig, uh, this is a unique one for us because you're not, uh, as far as I know, uh, a nuclear scientist, but could you please tell us real quick who you are and who, what you do, why you're here today? Sure. Uh, so I'm a screenwriter and uh, I write movies and now television, and I am the creator and sole writer and executive producer of Chernobyl, a five-part miniseries that is arriving on HBO May 6th. So I don't know when this That's airs, but we're going to drop this on the day today. Gorgeous. So it's airing tonight uh, on HBO here in the States and overseas um, on Sky in the United Kingdom on May 7th and around the world in various ways and outlets. Um, and so it is the story, the the uh, story of the real life uh, disaster that occurred at Chernobyl in 1986. Very exciting. 
Very exciting. Probably the first time many Americans have heard of it uh, because that's what we do here. Uh, yeah, I mean, there. I suspect that there are a lot of people who know the name Chernobyl and at least a little bit about it, if not just because they were the appropriate age, but a younger generation came to know Chernobyl weirdly through a level on um, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, where you get sent to Pripyat, the abandoned town near the power oh, plant. Pleasant. Yeah. So <laughs> I think we're going to be setting the record straight for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Uh, well, there's nobody better suited to do that. Okay, just to set us up, this is usually Brian's gig, but he fucking abandoned us, so I mm, guess I dick. will carry that cross. As a reminder to everyone, and to you, because you don't listen to podcasts much less ours, Correct. Uh, our goal every episode is to provide some quick context for the sort of question topic at hand, and then dig into some action-oriented questions that get the heart of why we should give a shit about it and what everyone else out there can do about Great. it. Um, I couldn't be I'm excited about this. I think it's, it's going to be helpful to set the record about a lot of this stuff because I think there's confusion. Well, you're besides the show, you also have your own podcast. W when is that coming out? The one you're uh, cheating oh, on yes. John with. So, right. So <laughs> I have my regular podcast with my podcast husband, John August. Mm -hmm. um, we do script notes, which comes out once a week since mm -hmm. I think the beginning of time. Beginning of time. Yeah. Since the beginning of time. Um, and, but I also have uh, sort of a, an explainer podcast that's a companion piece to HBO, the miniseries. So um, after the episode first airs on HBO, there is going to be a podcast released immediately after available for everybody on download via the usual mm -hmm. iTunes and so on and so forth uh, that I do with Peter Sagal of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Okay. Um, he's a very, very smart guy. And mm. the two of us basically discuss the episode and it's a chance for me to um, help explain all the things about the episode that were true. And then if there were any things that were changed because we just had to change some things to be able to tell the story, what we changed and why. And in this way, we're kind of fully accountable for to history and for history. Yeah. I mean, if podcasts can't set it straight, then what's the point? Yeah. Uh, that's, a, I mean, podcasts, what can't they do? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I always say, like, my children are going to say, uh, you know, when the world was burning, what did you do? And I'm going to say, kids, I had a podcast. They're going to be like, God, we hate you. Yeah. Daddy talked about it into a microphone. <laughs> By himself with his robot vacuum. Correct. He yeah. almost won a Webby. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I couldn't be more excited to ask you. That we usually kick this thing off with a with a one specific question uh, for our guest, which sure. is usually more pertinent to their work. But uh, this is just fantastic. So, Craig, instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, we like to ask, Craig, why are you vital to the survival of the species? It's a great, great question. I'm not. I don't think any in one individual person is. I don't think this is where we sometimes we fall down a hole where we because history is so good at telling individual stories. Uh, we begin to fetishize individuals as absolutely essential to the survival of anything. Um, I want to believe that without say, Jonas Salk, a lot of us won't be here today, but I also think probably mm -hmm. somebody else would have figured out the vaccine for polio. So there are very, very few people that I think um, have uh, are are unique in a way that we we can't afford to lose them. So my answer to you is I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I am trying my best, however, to, at least with this particular show, start to draw people's attention to the ultimate cost of playing games with truth and 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 fetishizing narrative over truth. So if that changes anybody, anyone's mind or influences anyone who will one day be a powerful person, then I suppose I've helped in some slight, tiny way. 
But otherwise, I am merely one more blip inside of this very large and occasionally exciting computer simulation we call reality. So happy you're finished with simulation. It's got to be at this point, right? No question. Got to be. No question. Yeah, no question. Do you think that John existed before it began? Was he plugged in at the beginning? I'm not sure that John exists now. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, John. Counterpoint. Yeah. I mean, John may be running the whole thing. It's hard to say. He could be, he could be just a bot. In other words, John may be the computer simulation of an NPC. And, and so it's hard to tell. <laughs> God, I feel like we could do a whole episode just on this. Probably um, should. All right. So listen, so that we can get to the question at hand and then get looking forward action stuff. I want to just provide a little context, but I also want to plot this out correct in a storytelling fashion so that we can uh, have some, some contextual uh, important contextual and perspective uh, focus on these things later. Cause, okay. cause the question is really is like, will nuclear power kill us all? Right. Sure. And right. the timing of your show is, uh, as we mentioned offline, really interesting because, A, well, it's important to tell the story anyways. Uh, and B, because we're having a whole lot of conversations about how we're going to, in the cleanest, safest way possible, power the future. Correct. Or, or we're toast. So let's just talk quickly about a little history. Please jump in, correct me. Honestly, hang up, whatever floats your boat. I uh, just want to get everyone on the same page because they're all texting and driving and they don't have time to Wikipedia this shit. So go for uh, it. we have gone through a shitload of ways to produce electricity throughout history, right? Uh, much of which, thanks to my man Faraday. So uh, various forms of water, wind, thermal, biomass, coal, uh, gas, oil, nuclear, the sun. In 1986, we were using most of these with obviously different proportional breakdowns mostly fossil fuels. Uh, but nuclear's really taken off. Nuclear power, I think probably most people don't. Actually, you know what, Craig? Why don't you tell us uh, how a <laughs> nuclear power plant works in three sure. sentences or less? Go. No, no problem. It works yeah. just like a regular coal plant. It turns water into steam. The steam turns a turbine. The turbine generates electricity. Uh, the big difference is that a nuclear power plant uses nuclear fission, which is the splitting of many, many, many atoms. Uh, in the case of Chernobyl, uranium, uranium atoms. Um, and the splitting of those atoms releases a lot of heat. That heat is what turns the water to steam. Easy, right? Easy. Doesn't, yeah. It doesn't sound uh, hellish or apocalyptic in no. any way. And uh, obviously, this all came out of out of uh, various efforts to to uh, split the atom and things like that. And uh, and it really took off, right? The first nuclear plant was in Russia uh, in the mid fifties, I believe. Uh, England shortly after, the U.S. shortly after that, and everybody got on the fucking atomic train. Uh, I think there are yeah. 31 countries either currently or has used nuclear power in some way. Yeah. Um, the U.S. produces the most, but I think France uses the greatest share for their energy. It's a shitload. Correct. Um, some countries have already phased it out, uh, like Italy. Um, some big countries are planning on phasing them out, uh, which we'll, we'll get into reasons why there. Uh, mm -hmm. Some folks are kicking the programs back into gear. Uh, yep. Lots of the existing reactors are old or using older technology. There is new technology and standards perpetually on the fucking horizon, but whether they'll get used is kind of what we're talking about uh, today right. and going forward. So Chernobyl uh, yeah. was, a, was a power plant in Ukraine, which is formerly USSR, mm -hmm. uh, 80 miles north of Kiev about? Yeah, about that. Okay. How many people were in Kiev at the time? 
Kiev, uh, over a million, I'm pretty sure. Right. And then, um, but close yeah. by, there were a couple small towns, right? Uh, right next to uh, Chernobyl was a town called Pripyat, which is, uh, it was an, uh, they called them Adamgrads. They were Adam towns. They were built essentially to support the construction and then operation of the power plant. So it was about, 50,000 people living in what is is a like a perfectly defined as a factory town. But mm-hmm. what was interesting about that town and all the Adamgrads is they were quite nice. Uh, they were considered very uh, privileged places to live. Their stores had stuff in them. Um, there were flowers in the streets. And, and you know, town mm-hmm. of Pripyat was people may be familiar with the famous image of the Pripyat Ferris wheel, which was due to open just a few days after Chernobyl exploded. Mm-hmm. Obviously never was. Um, to have a Ferris wheel in your little town, to have a, a large swimming pool in your little town. I mean, they were really well taken care of. Most of the people in the town did not work at the power plant. They they supported the people who worked at the power plant. So mm-hmm. they didn't quite know what was happening in the power plant. They were just happy to live in this town. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Interesting. And so how many people in the town? About 50,000. Okay, great. Uh, so 86 there's, we're going to get into this in more detail. There's an accident yeah. by way of human error. Chernobyl explodes. Uh, we'll get into more details uh, again later. Scene is not great. As, as the show so perfectly notes, this is something that has never happened on Earth before. Yeah. Uh, so, but also for context, this wasn't the only nuclear accident that's ever happened. There's been about 100 others of varying degrees of danger. How deadly were they? We will get into that. Yeah. So... With that, for just a little bit of, of a pretty poorly put together context, let's focus on the question, right? Chernobyl. Is mm-hmm. it a preventable and rare accident from the past, like many of these others? Or uh, is, are we painting a picture of a hellish nuclear future where all of our skin just peels off? So, <laughs> Craig, I, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, you can't have Chernobyl again. That's what I'll say. Yeah, that, that is not, you can't have that accident ever again. Well, and that's why I want to get into that. Um, I'm, I'm, because I'm curious what we've learned for and how we've applied it, if at all. So, uh, I do, I want to skip, uh, to, to, to almost the end, uh, Mm -hmm. for, for a major piece of this contextual puzzle. How many people died in the immediate Chernobyl accident? Well, that's the question. In the in the immediate Chernobyl, I mean, like mm-hmm. the night of, and maybe the I'm first talk, few yep. weeks following. Let's let's literally, um, yeah, let's say the first couple of weeks, night of, first couple of weeks. Depending on how you define it, between thirty and fifty. Okay, and and how many are estimated to have died from the byproduct uh, of the accident? <laughs> well, I know this is. I know this is. There have been huge ranges from yeah, Greenpeace to Union of yeah. Concerned Scientists. Yes. The the more hardcore um, scientific community will push that number way, way down to around 4,000 or so. Mm-hmm. Although you do have some scientists who, you know, put it more in the 40,000 or 50,000 range. You have some organizations that push it as high as a million. Mm-hmm. The problem is they're all using models. They're using sure. models and they're using models based on data that is somewhat questionable because it's data from behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and a lot of information just simply wasn't reported Mm -hmm. and they have to estimate. And what they're estimating is, did this kill you? Did it maybe shorten your life? Mm -hmm. How, what percentage of your death was brought about by Chernobyl, as opposed to the fact that you smoked a lot or that you drank a lot? Sure. This is really hard to figure out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say that Chernobyl had a very serious impact on the health of a lot of people. 
and it killed people, certainly. And um, the point of the show isn't, oh, my God, look at all these people who died. The point of the show is, first of all, look how many more people would have died had had there not been some seriously heroic action taken. Mm -hmm. And also, what can we why did this happen? And what can we do to prevent the human part of this equation from infecting other aspects of our lives now? Right. Um, so we don't want to minimize those that did die or the great work that was done. That was, uh, like you said, heroic work from turning into a truly fucking apocalyptic nightmare. I mean, yeah. I uh, was lucky to see the first two episodes. The end of episode two yeah. was really enough, I mean, to make me question my history. I mean, you sit there going, how the fuck are they going to get out of this? And I don't mean just like those guys. I mean, everyone, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the point is, and what I want to operate on, and I know you believe in this too. So when we ask big questions, when, when, we're, when we're making big plans, what's the true accounting of nuclear power's past? And what's the potential future? We have to operate from as many facts as we have. And like you said, the most rational models we have from reason, yes. from logic, from first principles, right? The most fundamental basic elements of a system, why it exists, why it works the way it does, why it doesn't. So yep. let's talk about the show. And you've mentioned this a little bit. I've only seen two episodes. I don't want to give anything away, but you about literally as early and upfront as possible, tell us the audience quite directly that this is a show about truth and why the truth matters. Do you, do you actually have that line there, that voiceover, if you don't mind giving it away? Um, uh, like just lying around as an audio clip? No, no, no. I just oh. mean, uh, oh, it, just it what stuck it is. with he, me so yeah. quickly and told the, us what the show was going to be about. Sure. The, the very first line is, what is the cost of lies? And, and that is what this show is about. I, I think, look, we're going to talk about nuclear power and how it functions. And, and I hope we get into the specifics of why... Chernobyl exploded here and why it can't mm -hmm. happen, for instance, in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but what can happen here <laughs> and what is happening here is a general debasement of truth, um, a kind of uh, engagement in outrageous denialism, and it is going to hurt us. It will. It's just we, we will. That is a debt that will come due and we will pay it. So that line and your perspective is obviously both very timely and striking, but also foreboding for the show, right? This isn't just a straight disaster story. When is a fire not a fire? From whose perspective and whose perspective matters? Do you think you would have taken the uh, same angle if you'd written this 10 years ago? Why was it important to you to, to do it this way and to uh, well, be so I, blunt? I, I... I don't think I ever would have written it any other way because I have no interest in writing a, a straight up disaster movie. I don't even like watching disaster movies. I, I've kind of, I've, I find them a bit boring. I love Titanic because Titanic is a love story. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I, I was fine with the, the kind of explanation. I, I actually more than fine. I, I really loved and enjoyed the explanation of exactly how and why the Titanic sank, but that's the kind of thing I get just as well from a documentary. Right. Um, but movies are stories that are really just about, oh my God, kaboom and ka crash. I don't, I don't care. I am so much more interested in the foibles of humanity and also the heights and, and these amazing noble moments that humanity can produce. And so the only thing that I found truly compelling about Chernobyl was all the things that happened after it exploded. Mm -hmm. at least from a dramatic point of view, from a scientific and 
uh, and sort of documentary point of view, I was completely obsessed with the science um, of why Chernobyl exploded. Mm. And um, and frankly, the more I understood, the better I felt, <laughs> oddly and ironically, about nuclear power here, because I now know just how hard it is to make a nuclear power plant explode. <laughs> and you emphasize that over and over in the first two episodes. It's people going, that's not fucking possible. It's and, not. And a guy with his eyes yeah. coming out of his head and, and, his, and his nose peeling off going, well, it happened. So yeah. And, and by the way, that's partly, that is part of the reason why some of this denial occurred. I mean, some of it occurred because humans will deny to protect their minds and their sanity. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we deny because, well, it's, it's rational to deny. If I came and told you, listen, there's a huge problem. Um, there are ghosts at Ralph's. <laughs> Do not go in that Ralph's. There are ghosts. You would say, no, there aren't right. because they're not real. Mm-hmm. Well, to the men in that control room in the early hours of April 26, 1986, an RBMK nuclear reactor was simply incapable of exploding. That was not something it could do. Mm-hmm. And so anyone coming in and saying it exploded was just somebody who had misunderstood. They had walked through the wrong smoke-filled mm-hmm. hallway and seen the wrong thing. And no, it's just simply not possible. But there were people who understood that it was possible. And that that information had been concealed for quite some time. So let's get into it. Let's talk about why the accident happened. Uh, sure. Not just the actions that were taken, but why Chernobyl specifically failed. Let's talk about that. And then we'll get into actually how the Russians uh, at that time, at least built their reactors differently from the rest of the world. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, well, talk to me about the, the night of. The two things kind of go hand in hand, okay. um, but uh, the this the night of the accident, they were running a safety test, which is ironic in and of itself. <laughs> and the, the purpose of the safety test was to figure out how to handle a loss of power to the power plant itself. And this had its roots in um, the Israelis had attacked a, a nuclear reactor. Oh, God, I want to say it was in Syria possibly Libya, the big mm-hmm. Syria. Um, and they had attacked it because the nuclear reactor they were concerned was really more of a, um, a breeding reactor for plutonium to create nuclear weapons. And in the bombing of that, the Soviets became concerned that the Israelis as American allies could be used to start blowing up Soviet infrastructure. And the Soviets relied very heavily on nuclear power. So what happens if a nuclear power plant loses power, well, the most important function of power inside of a nuclear power plant is to keep pumps running because pumps are moving water through the reactor core. And remember, like we said before, in the reactor core, you have atoms that are falling apart, fracturing, fissioning, and it's releasing all this heat. Well, that's why we move water through the core because it absorbs the heat. It turns to steam. The steam turns a thing. You make tur- But if there's no water, then there's a potential for the fuel to overheat and begin to melt the cladding that holds it together. And we start, we call that a meltdown, right? The fuel begins to melt. It is no longer a controllable reaction. It can go down and cause all sorts of problems, plus permanently damage the plant. So like any reasonable um, construction, they put in backup generators. Mm -hmm. 
if they lose power to the plant, the backup generators come on so that the pumps can keep running. The problem was that the Soviets, in their wisdom, had installed these enormous diesel generators that took about a minute to get going and create power themselves. So if you lose power at the Chernobyl power plant, which is an enormous power plant, and each mm -hmm. reactor is an enormous reactor, way bigger than the ones we use, there's going to be a minute where nothing's moving through the core. And that was a problem. So now, by the way, I'm going to stop for a second and point out that they knew this before they built the damn thing. Hmm. They knew it. They built it anyway. And in a very Soviet way, kept asking the man who ran the plant to, you know, certify that the safety test had been done to circumvent that problem. And he kept not being able to, and they kept demanding it. But all, everyone understood they were doing a dance which was, we've given you something that doesn't work. We are requiring that you make it work. Uh, so they came up with what I think is one of the craziest ideas ever. Their theory was, look, we've got this turbine. It's spinning, right? Zzz, making electricity. Mm -hmm. Now let's say we lose power to the power plant. Something goes wrong. Ah, there's no power. Well, that turbine is going to spin for a while, right? It's mm -hmm. going to have to slow down. It doesn't just immediately stop. It spins. And while it's spinning, even though it's slowing down, it's still creating electrical power. So what if the second you lose power, you turn on your backup generators, there's a clock going, you got a minute. Okay. What can we do to fill that minute? Let's take the electricity coming from the slowing down turbine and route it back over to the pumps to keep them running until the diesel generators are generating enough electricity to keep the pumps running. Oh. Basically, let's just try and catch ourselves while we're falling. Uh -uh. Uh, okay. This is not at all the way any, I mean, this is a terrible, the fact is, by the way, they never successfully managed to run the test ever. Uh, it is a terrible plan. Um, you should never, put a nuclear reactor into service <laughs> with this kind of glaring fault mm -hmm. and then try these kind of uh, weird jury rigged attempts to patchwork a solution. But what's really curious is that somehow in trying to do this that night, they managed to blow the whole thing up. <laughs> and I, I'm happy to go into how that happened as well. But before we can yeah, do that, as, as much as you, about, yeah, please go. We, we have to talk about how that reactor worked because yeah. it, what, what happens after only happens in a way because of the way that reactor worked. And, and I'm so bummed. I had uh, one of my best friends is the XO on a nuclear submarine and for years was the engineer and responsible of their reactor. His father was also a nuclear engineer and was going to join us today and couldn't. But when I oh, said, yeah. hey, man, did you study Chernobyl? It was just a long, deep sigh. And he was just like, those fucking idiots. And I was like, oh. so anyways, uh, uh, yeah, I've been I've been briefed, but let's let's do this. Yeah, this is a long history behind this. You know, the the Soviets had this two competing schools of thought about the generation of nuclear power. And the one that won out was something called RBMK. And the reason it won out is because you could generate power much more cheaply. So in general, when we talk about how nuclear power is generated in the West, what we what we use are pressurized water reactors. Typically in in our country, the the way it works is essentially you've got water moving through 
through these pressurized tubes that are mm-hmm. kept separate, by the way, from anything radioactive. As you do. And the heat is transferred through a loop to these to water that is turned to steam. But because of the nature of the enrichment of our fuel and the way we have created these these um, systems, we can use the water as a moderator. It is coolant and moderator. What is a moderator? So we talked a little bit about fission, right? So you've mm-hmm. got uranium-235 is, is unstable. It wants to get rid of neutrons. So a neutron will fly off of it. And perhaps it will hit another atom of uranium, perhaps uranium-238, and in doing so, blow it apart. And now you've got lots of neutrons flying out, and those are going to hit other atoms. And if you put enough uranium next to each other that is reactive in this way, you reach an, a, a mass of uranium that's enough to sustain a chain reaction. This is called the critical mass. But these neutrons are moving incredibly fast, like the speed of light. So you have to slow them down a little bit to increase the chance that they're going to hit anything. Otherwise, they just keep shooting by everything. Mm-hmm. So this is what a moderator is. And we, most people, most people in the West, pretty much everybody now, uses water as a coolant and a moderator. What it means is that the water is the thing that's actually kind of slowing down the neutrons enough so that the reactivity can go up and the heat can be generated. And then the water is turned to steam. Mm -hmm. Steam is not as good of a moderator as water is in that kind of reactor, in our kind. So what that means is the hotter the reactor gets, the less moderation there is, which means the less reactive it is. This is good. This is what you want. You want a reactor that kind of regulates itself, right? If you burn away all that water, the reactivity is going to want to go down. Great. Now let's talk about what the Soviets did. And only the Soviets, no one else ever, ever built this kind of reactor because it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's just inherently insane. So they say, look, if you want to make a pressurized water reactor and use water as coolant and moderator, you're going to have to either use some heavy water, which is, we don't have to get into that, but it's expensive and hard to make, or you have to use more enriched uranium in your fuel, like 3% enriched, meaning U-235 as opposed to U-238. Uh, we would rather not do that. We'd rather use less because we don't have a lot of it. Plus also, it would be super great if our reactor were set up in such a way that it would also produce some plutonium for our weapons program. And also, we want to make it huge. In fact, we want to make it so big that it'll be too expensive to cover it in a containment building. So they come up with this thing called RBMK, and here's how it works. In an RBMK reactor, you're using uranium-235, just like ours, but less Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And because there's less of it, you need to moderate it far more aggressively. In fact, you have to have a permanent moderation in place with graphite. So graphite is a form of carbon. Mm-hmm. graphite is a very good neutron moderator. So now you have these fuel rods fixed in position with and surrounded by graphite, which is constantly moderating the reaction. In other words, the moderation is always there. There is no way to slow that down or up. Water is less of a moderator than graphite in this situation. Also in this situation, the water is in direct contact with the radioactive material and radiated graphite. So the water itself is radiated, which is a different and additional problem. Okay. But in that system, what happens is in, in, in nuclear physics, uh, um, steam is called a void. 
So you have liquid and then you have the absence of liquid as a void. And we talk about coefficients. And a coefficient is anything that enhances or detracts from the ability for a reaction to go on. Mm -hmm. In an RBMK nuclear reactor, because graphite is there and constantly moderating, in fact, when water boils and turns to steam and creates a void, it's easier for the graphite to moderate the reaction, in which case you end up with a positive void coefficient, meaning the hotter the reactor gets, the hotter the water gets, the more it turns to steam, which means the hotter the reactor gets, which means the more water turns to steam. Right. This is terrible. Now, you can get away with a very low, there's, you know, if you have a very low positive void coefficient, there's a way to manage, manage mm -hmm. it. And in fact, in Canada, they do use um, a, a kind of reactor called a can-do reactor, which does have a, I think, a very slightly high positive void coefficient, but the way they've designed it, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It's never, it's never going to have the problem that Chernobyl had. Chernobyl had a massive positive void coefficient. It wanted to go faster. Basically, when you press the gas, the gas pedal went down a little bit more. Now, there are ways to control this, of course. In every kind of reactor, you have control rods. Control rods are made of neutron absorbers. In the case of Chernobyl, they were made of uh, boron. Mm -hmm. And so the operators move these control rods um, deeper into the core and then and then remove them somewhat in a way to kind of put like a bulletproof vest between all the neutrons. So you control the reaction with this, but it was a very unstable reactor, particularly at low power. Uh, and we can I don't want to get too much into the weeds of why that is, but mm -hmm. suffice to say that. Um, the reactor had inherent issues and everything I just told you, mm -hmm. the positive void coefficient, the fact that, that the, the power wanted to go up, mm -hmm. generally speaking at these things, the fact that there was no containment building whatsoever around these reactors. Mm -hmm. These were all known by everyone in the industry, including the people in the control room. I haven't gotten to the part about the things they didn't know. So you're doing uh, a hell of a job here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we arrive at the night of the safety test. And the idea was that they were going to, and it stopped me if you have any questions. No, so one quick question, again, just yeah. for context. How long has Chernobyl been up and running at this point when we get to the night of? Sure. Uh, I believe at that point it had been just about two, a little over two years. Have they run this test before? Uh, four times, I believe. Okay. Let's do it. Yes. I believe they had tried it three or four times before. I can't remember. It's, I have it in the show. Um, so okay. it's not. I can't remember which one it is, but each time they'd failed um, okay. and, and they'd failed because it's really hard to do. And, and it's really hard to do because you're not supposed to be doing it. It's just like, it's one of those things where you're like, okay, this increasingly complicated workaround is, is not working. Let's make it slightly more complicated. Let's sure, try again. Sure, and sure. But you know, people's promotions were hinged on this. And this is the the hard thing, you know, mm -hmm. when you, you deal with a system like the Soviet union, which was so regimented and, you could not move up unless you pleased, you know, party bosses. And one of the ways that you could please your party bosses was by getting this stupid test done and just having the piece of paper that says, hooray, we did it. Mm -hmm. I think you actually do in just what I've seen a pretty great job illustrating that system and how it even comes into play that night, three hours later. No question. No question. Um, so they, they are going to try this experiment. 
And in the experiment, what they do is they reduce power to simulate a blackout condition. They're going to now the, the reactor, uh, reactor number four at Chernobyl would normally run at around 3,200 megawatts. So it was, that's the amount of energy it's, it's putting out. They're going to slow that reaction down to get it to output about 700 megawatts. They're trying to basically um, get it to sort of a, a state that represents what would happen if um, power had been reduced. They can't go much lower than that because they know that this particular reactor is really unstable in low temperatures. Why? <laughs> it's just, again, this mm -hmm. is a terrible reactor design. So in that reactor, there was also something called the negative temperature coefficient. It was the one thing that could kind of help you out during normal operation. The hotter the fuel got, the less reactive it got. Remember we were saying you need to slow down these neutrons to mm -hmm. make sure the collisions occur. Well, heat is essentially is a function of, of atomic motion. You know, when things get hotter, mm -hmm. it means the atoms are moving around faster. So, so the hotter it got, the slightly less reactive it would get. But when you would drop down in power output and the, the reactant, reactivity went down, the fuel would begin to cool and that would make the reactivity start to go back up. So you mm -hmm. see, you really, this reactor's fighting you all the time. Sure. It's not what you want. Mm -hmm. That's not, yeah. It's, it's not good. Um, but that was the plan. The plan was lower down to approximately 700 to 1,000 megawatts. And then essentially go through the process of let's turn off the pumps. Let's check how much electricity is coming out from the turbine as it spins down. Once we know that, let's get everything back on again and we'll be fine. And that was supposed to be done on April 25th. However, uh, just about, and they'd, they'd lowered the power slowly. You have to lower the power very slowly in this mm -hmm. reactor. Just mm -hmm. like you have to raise the power very slowly. It's about 24 hours is what you want to go from all the way on to all the way off or vice versa. Yeah, you're not going to jack this thing up to 11. No, and you can't move it quickly. It, it does not move. If you try and move this thing quickly, it's going to fight you and it's going to do bad things. In either direction. Correct. Okay. So they had slowly lowered the power from 3,200 to 1,600. So they had mm -hmm. lowered it by half. Mm -hmm. it, they had done that over the course of almost a day. And now it was in the middle of the day of April 25th, and they were about ready to go ahead and lower it down again to around 700 and start the test. But they get a call from uh, the, the grid controller in Kiev who says, yes, I've received this memo that you're going to be reducing power uh, from reactor four and thus reducing power for this entire region. And you can't now <laughs> why uh, there's some speculation that because of the date, it was April 25th. It was near the end of the month. In the Soviet system, uh, production quotas ruled the day. And just like, you know, you and I are writers and we know mm -hmm. how it is, mm -hmm. your, your page output tends to rise the closer you get to your deadline. <laughs> right. uh, I think pro probably worked a little bit like that in the factories. Just they as needed dangerous. to really, uh, yes, they needed to jam out stuff uh, in that last week of April to make sure they hit their quotas. And if you lose power and you have to shut factories down, that's just not going to happen. So they right. said you have to wait. You can you can lower the power in the middle of the night, but you can't do it now. This <sighs> was where they should have stopped, but they didn't. Why? By the way, everything I'm telling you now is happening in in episode five. So perfect, great, great, <laughs> it's great, great. much more interesting to watch this in episode. No, five. I, I'm I'm sure, but I appreciate you because again, I don't I don't think most Americans. 
uh, know what it is unless they uh, either studied it or they're older or they played Call of Duty, much less what fucking happened and <laughs> right. you know, why all the leaves are gone off the trees for 200 years. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so this is a huge, why is this a problem? So what they do is they decide, you know what? No problem. We'll do it at night. We'll just hold the power right here. So we don't have to, cause if we don't, we have to do all another 24 hours and we'll be in the middle of a day again. So let's just keep the power right here at 1600. And then once we, once we pass midnight, uh, and the night crew comes in, then we'll, we'll lower it back down and we'll, and we'll go from there. So here's the problem in this reactor. As these atoms are fissioning, they are turning into different elements. This is called decay. Mm -hmm. So you have a uranium atom and it smashes apart and it turns into smaller atoms. And those are isotopes. Like for instance, you get iodine isotopes and cesium isotopes and, and ruthenium isotopes. One of the major isotope uh, byproducts of uranium decay in this reactor was xenon. Or xenon. I've become British because of the show. Yeah, no, please. It, let's call it xenon like Americans. And the interesting, one of the interesting properties of this isotope of xenon is that it's actually a very good neutron absorber. It wants to kind of soak up neutrons to become stable, mm -hmm. which means that if you have a lot of it in your core, it's going to start reducing your reactivity because it's absorbing neutrons just like the control rods do. If there's too much of it, then what happens is your core is what they call poisoned. Normally, in regular you know, operation at 3,200 megawatts in that reactor, as the, the xenon is created, it kind of is decaying down itself because of the speed of the reactivity. There's enough mm -hmm. neutrons breaking off to kind of fill up the xenon, calm it down, and then it, it turns into other things. Um, but when you're running at low power in this reactor, the xenon isn't decaying fast enough because not enough neutrons are being fired out. And as it does this, it starts to poison or draw or pull down the, the reactor wants to slow down. Mm -hmm. So we arrive now, finally, they're able to do the test. It's now a little bit after midnight because it's after midnight, there's a shift change. So the team in that room was not trained in running this test. They were not the ones who were supposed to run the test. They had never run the test before. In fact, they were looking at a, a book with instructions, some of which were crossed out. They didn't know why. They called another control room and asked them what they were supposed to do about those. And the person in the other control room said, oh, I think you're supposed to do the, the ones that are crossed out. <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with. Jesus Christ. Um, the control, uh, the, the engineer who was operating the control rods, mm -hmm. meaning essentially operating the gas and the brake, was a man named Leonid Tuptunov, mm -hmm. who uh, was in his early 20s. He had been on the job for about four months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not exactly uh, who you want doing this incredibly complicated task. It would have been complicated for anybody, but in this particular reactor, this thing is a, it's just an unbroken Bronco of a reactor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they begin and their task is to now lower the reactor to 700 megawatts. What they find very quickly is it's going down too much. What they don't know or suspect until I think that happens is that the core has been poisoned. There's too much xenon in there because of the time delay. So the reactor, instead of going down to 700, as they were hoping, actually goes a bit further, it goes somewhat into the 500s. And that is not acceptable because there are parameters for this test. Mm -hmm. So the man in charge of the room named Anatoly Dyatlov 
uh, orders them to raise the power from 500 to 700. The way they attempt to do this is by switching the way they operate the control rods. There are two ways to do it. One is to uh, use local groups of control rods. That's the way you want to generally do it Mm -hmm. because the reactor, Mm -hmm. again, is enormous. So it's sort of like, okay, let's move a a cluster of control rods over here. Let's move a, a cluster over here. We're not going to move them all up and down. Let's let's just try and make slight adjustments as we can. And when we're using that system, we're also getting temperature and reactivity readings from various parts of the reactor because reactors aren't perfectly evenly reactive across their cross-section. Right. The problem is when you're trying to raise power very quickly in a core that has been poisoned, it's going to be very hard to do with minor adjustments. So they make the decision to switch off of local automatic control and go to global control where they can move all of them up and down at the same time. And they do this, but in doing this, either Taptunov makes a terrible mistake in how he inputs the parameter or the device itself was, I don't know, malfunctioning. Instead of raising the power, it plummets. All the control rods go in too far and the power drops essentially to zero. I think it hovers around 30 megawatts, which is like, you know, when your stove is barely flickering. Sure. Now, at this point, I hope everyone is wondering, how the hell is this leading to an explosion? <laughs> For everything we've heard here uh, is that this reactor is basically shutting off. Right. And, it, right. And, and at this point, with your reactor at essentially 30 megawatts installed, full full of xenon, full of poison. (laughs) Right. Um, The word poison is just what's really getting me going here. Yeah. You have to stop, right? Every rule they had said you have to stop and then shut it all the way down and then wait 24 hours for everything in there like xenon to decay away into less harmful atoms and then slowly bring the power back up again using the 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 kind of the the tried and true methods they had always used mm-hmm. to do things somewhat safely especially sure. in a reactor like this sure that is not what Dyatlov suggests they do and by suggest i mean commands he mm-hmm. says i want you to raise the power i want to do this test tonight if Dyatlov reports a positive test then his boss's boss will get promoted his boss will get promoted he will get promoted he wants to do it. So he tells them, I need you to raise that power. I'm, command, I'm ordering you to raise the power. There's a protest. It fails. And so the only, they only have one way to raise the power at this point because they have to get it. They can't run the test if the reactor is off. They need to get it as close to 700 as they can. The only thing they can do is start raising control rods or removing control rods from, from the reactor. Mm-hmm. And so they do. They, they removed almost all of them, literally almost all of them. These are the only things really that keep the reaction from stopping Mm -hmm. the bulletproof vests. They're all out. And even then the amount of xenon in there, the best they can do is get this reactor to put 200 megawatts out, which is not enough for the test. Right. Again, they have cut the brakes on the car. Okay. (laughs) Cut the brakes. And yet he still thinks, there's a chance. He says, let's run the test. Because again, he just wants to, he, in his mind, he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to get, it doesn't matter if the, if the 
results are completely invalid, which they would have been. He just, he's trying to get his paper done. And, and for, for mine and everyone else's context, when they're going to watch it tonight, is this the gentleman running the control room when the, when the show uh, yes. begins? Okay. That's got correct. it. Face yes. the name. Yeah. That guy's great. Yes. Paul Ritter, uh, the actor is tremendous. So they begin the test and they're dealing with all sorts of problems, by the way, they're, the, the flow of water versus steam is all out of whack. Nothing is right. Everything mm-hmm. is wrong. Mm-hmm. They begin the test. And when they begin the test, they follow the protocol. They shut the pumps off. The water stops moving through the core. And once that happens, the amount of water that's in there, well, it starts turning to steam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about the <laughs> RBMK? Today, yeah, kids? That in, in an RBMK nuclear reactor, steam is a positive void coefficient. It means mm-hmm. it's going to increase reactivity, which is going to increase heat, which is going to increase steam, which is going to increase reactivity. And what do we know about the graphite? It is in there. Mm-hmm. It's not going anywhere. So right. it's moderating things. And now the power begins to rise. And it begins to rise rapidly in a kind of vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. But... When they see this, they at least know they can hit the emergency button. So in every nuclear reactor, there is a button that scrams the reactor. Scram just means all the control rods go in at once, really fast, ideally, <laughs> and the reaction goes to zero. Phew. It's, it's unplugging your computer, basically, is what it is. Sure, sure, sure. couple of problems with that. And this is why we have Chernobyl. And this is, right, this is where TV show exists. Yes. The Soviets did not install a, an emergency shutdown system the way anybody in the West had. Instead of um, a system that would quickly drop the control rods into place, they would sort of be lowered slowly by servos. So it would take a very long time for them to get in there. Mm-hmm. That's not what you want. But even worse, because, because remember, this all goes back to cheap. Mm-hmm. The more enriched fuel you have, the easier it is for you to maintain a, a chain reaction. 3%, uranium-235 is very rare. This is why you, you can't, you know, it's, it's hard to, to do these things. It's, I mean, you pointed out all these nations that have nuclear power. There are many, many nations, most nations that don't. Sure, right. Because it's hard. It involves precious resources. For the Soviets, it's incredibly 3%, expensive. It's incredibly expensive. Uh, 3%. Enrichment um, is is what you need to create an efficiently running safe reactor, as far mm-hmm. as I can tell. Mm-hmm. At least that is the way we do it, generally speaking, in the West. Sure. Here you have less. You have two percent, which is quite a bit less. And so you need to figure out ways to keep this thing running, because it's just not that enriched. That's why they packed this thing with graphite. They gotcha. went a step further. They know that when they're moving these control rods up and down, the control rods are going to displace water. And, and they would rather that that displacement not just happen with nothing. They want a little bit extra graphite on there just to keep that reaction as efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. So their control rods, the things that were designed to slow the reaction down, those rods had tips on them and the tips were graphite, which speeds the reaction up. Now, these guys in their efforts to get this reactor that didn't want to work mm-hmm. from 20 megawatts to 200 megawatts, they had pulled these control rods all the way out, all the way out. So when they hit the emergency button to shut this thing down, 
the control rods slowly start moving in. The first thing that goes into that reactor is not boron, which, which slows down and stops a reaction. Sure. It's graphite, speeds it up. So now you have these, these channels. These channels are designed for water and fuel, and they're surrounded by graphite. The water's all gone. It's all vapor now. Very pressurized steam, mm-hmm. which is accelerating the reaction. Graphite around it is accelerating the reaction. And then these control rod tips come in and they accelerate it even more. At that point, you have a number of these fuel channels that rupture because the pressure of the steam is, is so intense at this point. All of the vapor has been, all, every water molecule is now vapor. Mm-hmm. And it blows a few of those pressure, um, those fuel channels apart. And when it blows them apart, the control rods get stuck. They get stuck with the graphite in place. And now you basically have a blowtorch on a pile of gasoline rags. Sure. And there's nothing at this point anyone can do because they've pressed the last button they have. Right. And that button was the worst thing to press of all, although they didn't know. And in this situation, the whole reactor starts to boil up and becomes this enormous pressure cooker. And the power, which was, I mean, remember this test was supposed to be running at, uh, what, 700 megawatts, the power. Sure. And normally it runs 3,200. The power goes to about 33,000. Oh, no, that's unfortunate. And the pressure of the steam can no longer be maintained. It blows the lid off. Oxygen sure. rushes in. It mixes with hydrogen. It mixes with superheated graphite. And there is an explosion which the Swedes now believe was a small nuclear explosion. And uh, a huge amount of the core material is ejected upwards into the air, nearly a mile high, and you have Chernobyl. And we are... None of this in the West. <laughs> right. None of it. So, so you've, you've taken us up to, uh, basically jumped us to the, to the seven-minute point in episode one, uh, <laughs> when somebody looks out their window and goes, that's weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, Thank you for that, because uh, obviously you've spent years of your life learning and processing and turning that all into a story and probably being flabbergasted uh, by the entire thing over and over, as anyone would be. Um, So huge explosion wasn't supposed to physically be able to happen. Correct. Decisions were made. Mistakes were made. Uh, Poor planning, poor procedures, poor decision making were endemic uh to to the culture to this specific situation right yes from from top to bottom uh and, and i the show obviously gets into this lies were told numbers yes. were covered up in the name of power in the name of the party mm-hmm. people died so many more suffered uh hopefully never happens at least like this again right and an, an entirely unique clusterfuck that could have been so much worse so yeah. what uh, I, I guess briefly, what were the lessons learned from Chernobyl and did the Russians learn any of those lessons? They did. You know, the the Soviets, remember, they, they revered their scientists. I mean, the Soviet right. Union, if they could say one, they knew, for instance, that at some level, their people were living in deprivation, sure. at least a lot of them. Sure. They knew that they, that Stalin himself had, had, had caused a a Holocaust of a famine in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They knew that their stores would run out of stuff. They knew that they, sure. they knew these things, but what they also knew is that they were the first 
to get a man into space. They were the mm-hmm. first to put a satellite out there. They were the first to have nuclear power. They built this. They, their scientists were – and in the Soviet Union, religion had been removed from the equation. And you know, I'm about as atheistic as you can be as a human being. But I don't extend I don't extend my atheism merely to notions of God. I extend it also to notions of science in the sense that I don't want to ever elevate anything to a kind of blind faith religious. I mean, science should never be that. But no, in the Soviet Union, you know, why we have a place with skeptics, right? Correct. In the Soviet Union, they the the science community was kind of elevated into an almost quasi religious status, mm-hmm. and they had kind of flim flam their way through some of this stuff, mm-hmm. including these reactors, which they insisted were were perfect, and that there could not be a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union with Soviet nuclear technology, even though they had already had so many nuclear accidents, including a terrible one in the fifties at a place called Mayak. Mm-hmm. So, and they knew, by the way, that their design was inherently flawed. They knew that under certain circumstances, this had already happened. Chernobyl had almost already happened before at a a similar reactor in Leningrad. And they knew why. And they classified it. And they wouldn't tell anyone because Mm -hmm. it was too embarrassing and because it, it violated the narrative that they told. So, look, here's the big thing. This cannot happen in the West. Uh, The important thing I I want people to understand about Chernobyl is that this is no more an anti-nuclear power show than Titanic was about how boats are dangerous. That's not the point, (laughs) right? right? I mean, in the West, first of all, we have containment buildings around our reactors. These containment buildings can withstand strikes from airplanes, Mm -hmm. okay? That's why in Three Mile Island, about a dental x-ray's worth of radiation escaped during a partial meltdown of the core because of our containment buildings. Two, we don't use the technology that the Soviets use. No one uses that technology. It's inherently bad. Right. Our reactors are inherently designed to be safe with many, many, many layers of protection. And the track record speaks for itself. Sure. Three Mile Island was ultimately, in terms of its impact on uh, humans and the environment, incredibly minor. Sure. Um, we have, and we have had dozens of reactors running every day, 24 hours a day for decades without any major incidents in this country. Yeah. Now, you can have a an occasional devastating incident like Fukushima. Sure. But even Fukushima is not Chernobyl. And, and by the way, we actually, you might appreciate this, it will require you listening to a, a, a podcast. Oh, God. Oh, no. Um, no, we did an episode with an incredible uh, scientist um, who talked about how Fukushima, not that bad. Basically, the, everyone... Everyone in Los Angeles is like, oh, there's going to be uh, nuclear fish on our coast. Yeah, it's like, first of no. all, shut the fuck up. <laughs> exactly. And second of all, none of that happened. Um, so yes. that's important, right? Because we look at it, what were the lessons learned? But just to get us to today, there have been about 100 or so other quote unquote nuclear power accidents that we know about that have happened in the past 60 or so years, right? Yes. Uh, of, of hugely varying degrees. Of those 100, uh, Folks died directly in the actual accident in only about five of them, five of 100 accidents, right? right. And, and the estimates are ranging from about 11 total people to about 100 or so total people in just the yeah. accidents themselves on site. To be crystal clear, uh, uh, again, that does not include the, the, in many cases, especially Chernobyl, taking a huge chunk of this, thousands of later cancer and other radiation-related deaths or Correct. damage to, again, food and water and the environment. Yeah. There's tens of thousands of folks uh, who suffered from after effects of Chernobyl and 
and and other nuclear disasters. Uh, and much of that, at least in Chernobyl's case, much of it wasn't revealed, as we've discussed here, but lessons were learned. Uh, correct? No question. I mean, even to the point where after they had retrofitted those reactors to prevent something like they basically lowered the positive void coefficient and changed the way that the control rods worked. Even then, when Lithuania was granted admission to the EU, one of the conditions of admission was you have to stop uh, running that RBMK plant in Ignalina, which we uh, plant that we shot uh, part of the, the series at. It was essentially a sister mm-hmm. reactor because because no matter what you do with a reactor like that, ultimately you're kind of you're tempting fate. It's not supposed to be there. It's a dangerous version of a nuclear reactor, sure. and we we now have. Um, in, you know, gotten to a place where we don't have to worry about that. Um, I, I think that, look, I don't know how many people are going to die on the roads today, but it's going to sure. be more than died last year from or to the next last five years from, you know, incidents involving nuclear power generation. And, and that's what I want to get into here, right? Because when we're looking forward in, into how to build a 21st century power portfolio. And there's so many conversations happening uh, and there's so much progress being made. And again, to be clear, I do not want to minimize the lives lost and the potential impacts of a nuclear disaster from a a worker-inspired accident uh, to Fukushima, an ocean earthquake that causes a tsunami that takes down secondary safety measures uh, and still turned out okay, to, of course, a potential terrorist attack. Right. There's so many potential implications, but let's, as you just said with the road, and I'm excited you mentioned that we need to put uh, the the dangerous impact of each of our current and potential power sources into perspective. Right. Yes. So <laughs> direct immediate deaths from actual accidents on site, nuclear uh, is, is very low, less Correct. than a hundred in many cases, yes. radiation deaths, including Chernobyl, probably total low hundreds of thousands. Does that sound about right? Maybe less, yeah, maybe a little more. I, I mean, I guess the way I would put it is in terms of negatively impacted lives. So shortened sure. and death we're talking. Yes. Sure. I think, I think, I think that would be fair to say six figures. Okay. So in 2017, coal mining deaths just from actual coal mining in the U S was 17. Okay. So that's as many people basically who've died in directly in, in nuclear accidents throughout history. Correct. Uh, there were about 100,000 coal mining deaths in the past 100 years. Yeah. That's just, again, the act of mining. That's not mm-hmm. black lung. Um, let's get into indirect. Coal is responsible for about 800,000 premature deaths per year globally. And God fucking knows how many more millions uh, it, 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 from, from illnesses, right? asthma, cardiovascular. Uh, in China, it's about 670,000 die uh, prematurely yep. from coal. India, uh, again, part of this bigger number, uh, it's 80 to 115,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the US, it's about 13,000 people annually, 23, 25,000 in Europe, 800,000 premature deaths from breathing this shit. Uh, how about oil and gas? Uh, about 1,500 people have died in oil and gas production-related deaths just in the past 10 years. Uh, which fun fact is about how many people have died in the war in Afghanistan, or I guess U.S. troops uh, yeah. specifically. We don't need to get into that. Uh, wind, look, we're killing a fuck ton of birds. I don't know how to fucking fix that. They're massive blades of bird death. Uh, but no, the wind turbines do not give you cancer. 
Um, on the positive <laughs> note, I mean, we look at the things that need to be fixed, right? Shipping. So last month, the United Nations International Maritime Organization said, here's the deal. We're lowering the maximum allowable uh, sulfur content in, in fuel from 3.5% to 0.5% starting next year. Fast. The industry yeah. is pissed off. Guess what? That limit will avoid an estimated 570,000 premature deaths worldwide over just the next five years. Yeah. So this is what I talk about when I, when I say it's so important when we're considering this, this future of which we have a huge fucking ticking clock mm -hmm. uh, that we operate from facts and first principles, right? And so you've said this, Craig, you, you, you've painted this picture for everyone and, and I'm so excited for everyone to see it. You've brought this nightmare, potential nightmare to life for everyone for really the first time. Where do you now, considering all that, come out on nuclear power after, all, after everything I'm, here? I'm pro-nuclear power. I'm more pro-nuclear power now than I was before I did Chernobyl because now I know how hard it is to make a reactor explode. Look, I, I, in studying radiation, you begin to learn how to put things in perspective. Um, you, you know, I, I always, people say, did you go to Chernobyl? Of course I went to Chernobyl. Were you scared? No, I got more radiation flying to Chernobyl than I did walking around Chernobyl. Sure. Because every time you get on a plane, you get that much closer to, um, cosmic radiation and radiation, radiation's impact on you is a function of the strength of the source, the amount of time you're near it and how close you are to it. Yeah. That's why we so, can't go to Mars yet. Correct. Correct. Um, so I, knowing more, you begin to understand, look, the fact that you can build a, a nightmare reactor like Chernobyl, which should have never been built, and then have um, very dangerous people running it uh, and also withhold precious information from them and it leads to an explosion is, is not at all relevant to whether or not we should be building safe nuclear power plants here. The fact that Ralph Nader exposes a car that is unsafe at any speed doesn't mean all cars are unsafe at any speed. Right. It means we learn from it. Um, what was already a very safe method of producing power in the West where it was done responsibly and carefully is even more so now. However, the, the message of Chernobyl, at least as it relates to nuclear power generation, is we must never lose respect for this fundamental force of nature. Mm -hmm. We can't ever play with it. We have to really treat it like it is, which is potentially devastating. Sure. It is. That's the, that's the big difference. It's why people get afraid to get on an airplane, but they're not afraid to get in a car, even though, as you and I both know, they are more likely to die in that car than on the plane. Not even close. Why? The reason that people are afraid is because you can get into a car accident and walk away. In fact, most sure. people do. You can't really get into a plane accident and walk away. Most people don't. Right. This is the thing that scares us because our brains don't work right. <laughs> we have no, I mean, we're fucking reptiles, right? We, yeah. We, we just can't handle some of these things. So we dread radiation. It's a kind, and by the way, understanding what happens when you die from acute radiation syndrome, you should dread it. It's the worst possible way to die. Yeah, the no thanks. Worst period. So of course we are scared because it's hard to have a minimal uh, nuclear disaster. Um, but you're absolutely right. The, the way we are proceeding now is far more deleterious to our health now. And that's even if we weren't creating uh, 
uh, dangerous climate change and permanent climate change through the use of fossil fuels. Even if, even if we were just looking at mining deaths and sure. lung injury. Right. So I you don't even that, have to include those other things. That's right. And look, exactly. I, I think you're, you're probably at least somewhat of a fan of, of, of thinkers like Steven Pinker. And, and I am too. Right. I am. And yes. I, and I, and I really do fundamentally agree with him uh, that yes, we are all incredibly lucky to be alive in this moment. Right. We are fundamentally better off and safer and wealthier across the board than, than, than ever before since we were fucking climbing trees. Right? No question. 100%, no, no argument. Question. Uh, it, it varies across the board in different places, different demographics, of course. Sure. But across the board, it's better. But where I draw the line in the sand is, and this is where we get to ticking clock is, yes, but for, our, for how long? How long right. does this moment, which we, we might just be calling a peak at some point, of prosperity last. And, and I, I really hate to be a messenger of doom, though sometimes this job demands a, a version of it. But we are already seeing these catastrophic effects of the choices we've made and the tools we use to, to build societies to, to literally power the 20th century across the globe, right? We're seeing the tip of the iceberg in so many ways. Um, yeah. So look, a, a, a small part of me will always be an idealist and still wants to use the perfect cross section of the most renewable and the least dangerous power source and something that can explode and stay dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years doesn't really check that fucking box, right? Something that, by the way, we still haven't figured out how to get rid of like the, the storage of the, of the, <laughs> well, waste. you're not going right. to, um, right. And look, here's the problem. You can't create power without doing damage. You just can't. You and, can't. And, and, and it's not but, possible. Right. You can't. But Again, going back to those numbers, like you said, we don't even have to, to to talk about the bigger numbers to show that, yes, this could be very dangerous. However, look at what we've already done. Look at yeah. look at the, what we've caused and it and it's happening and we're seeing the effects of it and we understand it for the first time. Well, I, um, I mean, I hope that that we can continue to rely on nuclear. I mean, the, the beautiful part about nuclear power generation is that it doesn't put a single atom of carbon into the air. Right. And it runs without smoke. And it, yes, we do have to deal with waste and we have to be much more careful with the plant itself. And we have to be, and by the way, I will say that uh, just as we are continue to be seemingly willful, willfully and woefully unprepared for um attacks on our cyber infrastructure. I believe that that our current state of protection around our nuclear power generation is simply not adequate. Sure. And we need we need to improve all of this. Um, but the what what I am dismayed by are a lot of people that show up on my Twitter feed saying, how do you feel about the fact that you're scaring people away from nuclear power and that's going to kill our planet? So congratulations, you're killing our planet. And I just mm -hmm. think you're stupid and weak. <laughs> Because if you cannot, if you cannot process and acknowledge what happened at Chernobyl and why it is relevant now and why you must consider it always as you move forward in creating this technology and improving this technology, then you're part of the problem. You live in a state where you are unable to handle two things at once. Mm -hmm. It is dangerous. Nuclear power is inherently dangerous. That doesn't mean it has to kill anyone. It just means we have to be careful. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. We have to be incredibly careful. And the good news is, generally speaking, we are. 
and about the proof nuclear. is in the pudding. Yes. Yeah, we and are. The proof but, is in the pudding. And and look at how uncareful and how how careless we are uh, with some of these other things. I mean, we talk about again uh, coal production related deaths and breathing the air. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, well, that's just because for, for the poor, poor people, we stick the factories in their neighborhood. It's like, yeah, what about also the fucking train tracks that pull the coal and all of a sudden this town has three times the rate of asthma and these kids have cardiovascular issues at, at sure. 12. It's like we're more careful with nuclear, even including these disasters than anything else. And well, we because, be. Quinn, it's new. See, the thing is, what we do is we price in old things as inevitable, like Sure. You know, we've had cars running around, you know, long before people understood the nature of pollution and we just sort of, and, and before people would, would simply not put up with things like 30,000 deaths a year on the road, right? which is still what we have in the United States. Yeah. And we just price it in as well, but that's normal. It's like, but if you were to say, well, it's like, I remember when Tesla put their car out, <laughs> there was about a few months later. Some Tesla driver, you know, got rammed by a truck or something happened and the battery burst into flame and the car sure. burned into flame. And it was, there were news articles everywhere. Oh my God. Everywhere. Electrical car on fire. There's like a thousand regular car fires a day. Since you printed the fucking article. Correct. You know? Because it, it's old. We don't mind. Oh, well, it's old and shitty. So it's okay. But new and shitty is terrifying to us. No, here's the thing. Old and shitty is shitty. Period. The end. And, we and should like you stop said, doing it. So, so much of today's uh, conversation is, is built on this ethos of, yeah, well, and you're like, no, not fucking yeah, right. well. Like, exactly. if this started today, if there was an attack that killed 30,000 people a year, if there was this, if, there, we, if we said, here's the deal, 800,000 people across the world are going to get wiped off the planet Thanos style this year because of something, wouldn't we do everything to stop that and just go, sure. we can't do this, but we don't. Um, yeah, it's too big for people. They don't know so, what to do. I want to, I I know you got to get out of here. So I I just want to, want to tie this up. We do try to work towards action because when we talk about climate change or fucking cancer or whatever, it's no fun for somebody to be dicking around the car, listen to an hour of talk about it and then agreed sit around and go, what do I do fucking do with myself now? So uh, our goal is to provide as much as we can specific action steps. uh, our, Our listeners can take to support your mission, this mission with their voice, their vote and, and, their dollar where it applies. So where we need to go as a people. So yeah. with their with their voice, and this can kind of tie into their vote as well. What are the big actionable specific questions you feel like we should be asking and asking of our representatives and and things like that? Well, um, we need to make um, the reduction of of carbon emissions uh, a top priority for our nation. Um, and I also think that we need to make other countries' reduction of carbon emissions a top priority for our nation. We've never mm-hmm. been shy about bullying other countries or pushing them around in ways we wanted to for our own benefit. Well, this is for our benefit. Yeah. It doesn't matter much what we do over here with our Priuses or our recycling mm-hmm. if China and India continue to just light massive pyres on fire every day and send mm-hmm. the smoke into the air. So we need to figure this out as a, as a world. Um, and it has to be our number one priority. Part of that, I think, for us can be the generation of safe nuclear power. But we have to not be arrogant about it. You know, it, you can point to these safety numbers and go, see, and then just become complacent. And we know we see this in the airplane industry. You know, there's a reason that Boeing, those two Boeing planes crashed. It's because mm-hmm. Boeing got complacent. Right. They figured, like, look. Oh, all these people who are afraid of flying are so fucking stupid. Correct. 
We our safety record is insanely good. Correct. Huh. This plane's got a little bit of a problem. Let's just do this little dumb workaround. It'll be fine. Incorrect. Right. And every time you have an accident, you are violating the delicate tissue thin web of trust you have in place. Mm-hmm. Right. It's more important for the nuclear power industry to be careful about this than the coal industry. The coal industry doesn't be careful about anything. Nobody, nobody notices that it's there. We just shrug and go, oh, well, right? It's like, well, it's like in my house, I burn wood and burr, burr, burr. So Chernobyl, Chernobyl, the lesson of Chernobyl must be told and it must be understood and it must be embraced and the, and nuclear power must be treated with the utmost respect and care. So that means defending our infrastructure grid and defending our computer systems and increasing security at plants. And I think we need to build new plants. There's no way around it. And that also means we have to find a facility that it is safe and effective to store the spent fuel. It's, we just have to, there's no way around it. Right. Right. We are an innovative people. Uh, we figured out how to do this in the first place and, and there, there, we have to be able to figure out a version of, of making it tenable long-term because it is the single most proven cleanest, uh, energy source we have. It has been working reliably 90, whatever fucking percent of the time. For, for 60, 70 fucking years. And it's sufficient. Um, we, we're and, simply not going to get the energy we need to, to huh. live the lives we, we now require to live through wind or solar. It's not going to happen. Right. And those things are exploding. And that's awesome. And that's great. And we need as much of it as possible. But we cannot shun this thing that nope. works and, and works so well. Agreed. Um, all right, listen, uh, we're, we're getting close to time. I, I, I can't thank you uh, enough for this and for, for making what you made. Uh, last couple of little questions, uh, which I delight in hearing your answers on them. We'll let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, this is again, usually applied to scientists who actually spend their days trying to save humanity. Um, uh, Craig, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? I, would, I think I was in fourth grade and I don't know how I ended up doing this, but I was a vo- in my school, we had a, a wing and that's where the kids were for special education. And at the time we're talking literally 1978, I think mm-hmm. that meant kids who had down syndrome and I was a volunteer. So I would go there during like the lunch break and just hang out with those kids as part of just like a volunteer. And I just, um, I remembered when I was, about to go into fifth grade and they were going to move some other fourth graders in and I was going to move out of that program. This one kid, his name was Steven. He just, and, and I don't know how old Steven was. He could have been 30 for, I don't know, mm-hmm. but he just hugged me and cried. And I remember, oh. remember that I had made a difference to this person. He was an adult and, you know, even syndrome, he was an adult and I was nine and I had made some huge difference to him. It's, it, you don't forget that because I think when you're nine, you feel like you're barely making a dent on anything. You can barely sure. make a dent on food, you know? Right. Um, but I had, I had made a difference to a person and, and, and they were going to miss me. And that was, that was pretty moving. Wow. That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? Ooh, in the past six months. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Was you mean like influence and change the way I do it? It's up to you, champ. Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, 
It could be just um, your fucking emotional support animal at the end of the day. I mean, it could be a bartender, you know, it's a, <laughs> I, I'm um, not, I'm not choosing the category. Sure. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Johan Rink. Okay. Johan Rink is the director of Chernobyl. He direct, just as I wrote all of the scripts, he directed all the episodes and I have in the past six months in going through post-production with him and editing with him and doing visual effects with him and, and working on the score together with him. I've just learned a lot. And I think we have had a really good influence on each other. He's, you know, he has made me more, uh, more willing to take some risks, more willing to turn away from things that I think well, this would work, but maybe just because it would work doesn't mean we should do it. Maybe we should try something a little bolder. Mm -hmm. And in turn, I think I've probably gotten him to be a little more, how shall I put it, accountable to an audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's he's been an influence on me. And I think about his visual style and how it's going to impact the way I kind of write things as I go forward. And and um, so I would say Johan Rank, Swede genius director of Chernobyl. I love it. Hey man, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, as a, as a artist, as a friend, as a mentor, thank you for coming on and, uh, and talking about your process and this thing and giving us context and what you've learned from it. Uh, I hope it influences the conversation. Thanks man. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> <laughs>